Books. 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 Hello, and welcome to Didn't Read It, the podcast that believes in passive-aggressively wearing your wedding dress. (laughs) I am your host... Grace Todd, and with me today is frequent flyer of the podcast, <laughs> Lee. Hello. Hi. Hi. Well, Hello. Welcome back. Hi. <laughs> I'm only going to talk when you're talking. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Uh, it's a podcast. It's, po- it's, it's good. It's a podcast <laughs> where we talk about books. Books. Today, we're going to keep talking about the book that we started last week, mm-hmm. Rebecca West's The Return of the Soldier. I suddenly second-guessed that I'd gotten her first name wrong. It just sounded wrong. Like, oh, I can't read. I think I've read and said it too many times. Yeah. And for the record, this is not an entirely World War One-themed <laughs> podcast, for the record. It just so happens to be a theme we're looking at right now. It's true. I am eventually going to stop torturing my guests with World War One literature. Someday. Someday. Yeah. Not now. <laughs> not anytime soon. Later. No. I mean, I... I appreciate you bringing that up because this season, shall we say, yeah. we're gonna we're gonna revisit World War One literature several times, not all in a row. I think we have t- probably two more World War One books we're gonna talk about. Mm-hmm. Kind of get a a big picture view of the the literary landscape that was created by the First World War. Yeah, but it is also gonna be intercut with other things. I have an episode coming up with my good friend Michael. We're going to talk about a short story by Roald Dahl. Oh. One of his adult, deeply uncomfortable short stories. You know, he was a spy. He was a fascinating man. Yeah. And uh, I have another recording session coming up with a local artist that I'm really excited to bring on the show. And she and I are going to talk about some good old-fashioned Victorian feminist stuff. Huzzah. We're going to go backwards. We're going to go forwards. we got a lot of ground to cover. We're going to... Do the hokey pokey, turn ourselves around. That's what it's all about. That is what it's all about, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> but for today, it's World War One. It's World War One. Yeah, things are bad. Mm. Do you want to give us like a two-minute recap of what has happened thus far in the novel? Oh boy. Okay. All right. So there are these. There's okay. <laughs> the answer is no. Next question. <laughs> No, come on, you can do it. I believe in you. <laughs> okay, I know I do. So there's these rich people. There's a husband, a wife, and the husband's cousin. Spinster cousin. Spinster cousin. She's old. She's gross. Nobody wants her. Um, <laughs> it's They spend so much time being like, we're all old now, and they are in their late 30s. They sound like they're younger than me. Um, the spinster cousin is the narrator, Jenny. And the male, Chris, is off in the war. And so Jenny and Kitty, his wife, live together on their big estate. And they say that they're alone, but actually they have like a thousand servants, but that doesn't count. Um, So they're alone. And um, they're just being like, oh, we're just here keeping the house pretty while we wait for our husband slash our husband cousin to get back. Um, (laughs) And he's so great. And never mind about our own lives. We just think he's great. And we're keeping this house for him. And then some lady shows up, some some slut shows up some um tacky a yeah. horrible tacky middle class yeah Ugh. with a football purse 
and she's like, hey, I got a telegram from Chris and um, he's hurt. He got hurt more and I just thought you should know. And they're like, who the f are you? She's lying to us. She's trying to scam us and they send her away. But it turns out that she wasn't scamming. She wasn't lying. And Chris really did get hurt. And then Chris comes home and it turns out, no, no, no. I'm doing well. I'm doing great. You're this doing is good. so good. Yeah. This is going to be a breeze to edit. Um, <laughs> so then another cousin who's like a reverend or whatever is like, okay, no, I think he really is hurt because I got a telegram too. I'm going to go visit him in France and bring him home. And he goes to get him in France and then he writes from France and he's like, yeah, so he is hurt. That is true. And also, just so you know, just so you can prepare yourself, prepare Kitty because she's a little uh, dramatic. Um, <laughs> uh, he has amnesia for 15, the past 15 years. So he didn't know he's married. He didn't know his dad died. He didn't know any of this, okay? Um, anyway, I'm gonna bring him home. Um, <laughs> we'll be there soon. Uh, be cool. Okay, bye. And he brings him home and it does not go well. He does in fact have amnesia. He doesn't remember anyone. Most of all, he doesn't remember his own wife, Kitty. Does not take it well. Yeah. And she, their first dinner with him back, they all go upstairs to like change and get ready for dinner because dinner was a big deal back then for the rich people. And when they come back down to dinner, she's wearing like her full wedding dress. And she's just like, you sure you don't remember this? And he's like, no, I really don't. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and it's like really uncomfortable. She gets mad. And he's like trying to be nice about it. But he basically says, I need to go back and see Margaret, the common, the disgusting whore, who seems very nice, by the way. She's not disgusting. She seems lovely. He's like, I need to see Margaret or else I'm going to die. And Kitty's like, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine that's so fine nothing has ever been this fine yeah this is the most fine i've ever felt so she goes off to bed she's mad and then chris and his cousin jenny are talking and chris basically tells jenny he's like yeah so the last thing i remember is back in the day back when i was 21 and i met margaret and we were so in love she lived on monkey island don't <laughs> that's a real place <laughs> And we fell in love and we had this like beautiful summer together. And then the next thing I knew, I woke up in the trenches and it's like, wow, that's sad. And then you said the last thing you said was that the next day, Margaret comes to the house. Yes. Yeah. That is where we left off. And we are now picking up where Kitty has sent Jenny to acquire Margaret. Oh, she sent for Margaret. Margaret didn't just show up. No. I bet Margaret didn't want to show up. Well. Oh. Oh. Well, Chris is there now, so she probably wants to see Chris. But well, she's married now. <sighs> Talk about Bravo, we know drama. Yeah, Real Housewives of Harrowweld. I want to say I pronounced it Harrowweld in the last one. I think it's probably Harrowweld. Harrowweld. H-A-R-R-O-W-E-A-L-D, which I think in British English would actually be Harrowweld, not Harrowweld. Harrowweld. So, sorry. I got the place name wrong. Mm. Mm -mm. Fire me forthwith. Yeah. It's Lee's podcast now. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're changing some things around. <laughs> so Jenny has taken the chauffeur, another one of those many people that live in the house that don't matter. Doesn't matter. Don't have a face, don't have a name. And gone to retrieve Margaret. At Kitty's request. Well, at Chris's request, I suppose. Oh. I mean, well, hmm. Kitty's in charge here, really. Wouldn't you but think, hold on, wouldn't you think Chris would go see Margaret elsewhere? It doesn't seem like he would bring her back to the house where Kitty also is in I her think, wedding dress. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think the implication is that Chris is unwell and shouldn't be gallivanting around. Okay. 
I'm glad you asked that because I think one of the things that is happening very much subtextually here that we sort of forget about is just as Kitty's biggest complaint about Chris and his behavior is not that she is smitten with him, but that it is a massive breach in decorum. Mm -hmm. Chris is essentially mentally ill. Mm -hmm. And so it is of the utmost importance that they keep him close, that they keep him at home, right? They can't have him parading around showing off his mental illness all willy-nilly. Because that would be horrible getting people talking it would be easy to argue that the reason that kitty wants so badly to bring him home when they find out what has happened is not because she is desperate to see him but because they need to hide his they got to control the narrative mental infirmity yeah as quickly as possible they got to get out in front of this thing pretty much spin it you know in the last episode when she's talking about resigning herself to chris having a mistress yeah because she's still convinced he's faking it remember she's talking about other couples you know mr so-and-so has a fancy woman and his wife is dealing with it so i suppose i can do the same thing she is primarily preoccupied with the public face of this yeah yeah and so it is safer from her perspective to bring this woman to the estate where they can be certain that no one will see, right? Except for the staff. But the staff aren't really people, as we've discussed. Yeah. And so she sends Jenny to tell Margaret that she must come. hmm <laughs> Very chill. And once again, we get one of those lovely long paragraphs. About of, how gross Margaret is? Of Jenny being just an absolute <laughs> hater. Yeah. Of all things that aren't expensive and beautiful. Yeah. So she takes the car out to this this horrible, this disgusting suburb, foul little suburb where Margaret lives. No brick house. Blech. It says, Wealdstone is not, in its way, a bad place. <laughs> it lies in the lap of open country. And at the end of every street rise the green hills of Harrow and the spires of Harrow School. But all the streets are long and red and freely articulated with railway arches. And factories spoil the skyline with red angular chimneys. And in front of the shops stood little women with backs ridged by cheap stays, who tapped their upper lips with their forefingers and made other feeble, doubtful gestures, as though they wanted to buy something and knew that if they did, they would have to starve some other appetite. (laughs) When we asked them the way, they turned to us faces sour with thrift, it was a town of people who could not do as they liked. Bunch of disgusting bargain hunters <laughs> looking for a deal. I'm going to have to stop making a particular point of every time they say something horrible about Margaret and, the, and how cheap and terrible she looks at a certain point because we'll be here forever. Yeah. Just rest assured that anytime we are describing Margaret, Jenny cannot help but be like, and her clothes were disgustingly cheap. <laughs> Well, okay, who is Rebecca West's intended readership for this book? How does she think her audience will react to this? Do we think they'll be like, yeah, Jenny's right? Or do they think they'll be like, wow, Jenny's super out of touch? Based on my reading of West's biography, which we'll get into a little bit Mm -hmm. more later, I don't know how much confidence or faith she was putting in the reading public. (laughs) They're stupid like those bargain hunters in front of the stores. But I can tell you that that this is very much a case where we are meant to be 
getting a portrait of who Jenny and Kitty are. Yeah. And it is not a flattering it's one. supposed to be more reflective of them than what they're talking about. Yes. Yeah. West was, among other things, an agitator for the rights of the working class. Got it. And so I think that this portrait she is painting of Jenny, even though Jenny is our narrator, is not quite lampooning mm -hmm. a certain type of woman, but very much meant to underline how blind Jenny's affluence has made her to what is really going on. Yeah. This is very much one of those books, and I know I've said it before on the podcast, but like culturally we are not in a moment that loves an unreliable narrator. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think people struggle with it currently, maybe more. I do sometimes. It, it can be hard. Yeah. You have to look so closely to really understand what's happening there, and I think a lot of us are run off our feet and... It can be hard to be like, oh, right. <laughs> oh, I can't trust you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I have a hard, hard time with unlikable narrators. Well, and Jenny, I don't know how likable Jenny really is. Yeah. I think she is sympathetic, but certainly not empathetic. Mm -hmm. My experience of the novel is that I felt bad for her, but also... But like, well... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. The person I wind up feeling worse for is Chris, honestly. Yeah. Which is unusual. Yeah. But for now, we're going into a disgusting <laughs> suburb. Ugh. We find Margaret's house with her front garden, which, quote, seemed to be imperfectly reclaimed from the greasy field. <laughs> and it says, and not only did Margaret live in this place, she also belonged to it. When she opened the door, she gazed at me with watering eyes and in perplexity stroked her disordered hair with a flowery hand. Her face was sallow with heat, and beads of perspiration glittered in the deep, dragging line between her nostrils and the corner of her mouth. Wait, does that mean she was smiling? No, oh. it's just, it, Jenny's just making sure that we know that Margaret's face is lined and creased with Gross. age and concern. And yeah. It just goes on from there. Sure. You can imagine. Yeah. I feel like if I dig too much into this, it's just going to make all of us start feeling bad about ourselves. <laughs> so suffice it to say, Jenny just stays mad at Margaret for not being rich. Yeah. And her front yard was greasy. And greasy. she was greasy. I've never seen a field described as greasy. That was a new one for me. Yeah. So Margaret invites her in and they sit down. And Margaret is asking how he is, and Jenny is explaining that he's quite ill and that he wants to see her, and that he's going to get better, right? He hasn't been permanently injured. He's not maimed. He didn't lose a limb, you know, any of any of these very horrible things that can happen. Just his brain. Just, yeah, just his brain. How does Margaret react to all this? So she, she says, I don't believe that anything bad could be allowed to happen to Chris for long. And I'm sure that you're looking after him beautifully. But when a thing you thought had ended 15 years ago starts all over again and you're very tired. And then she breaks off and it says she drew a hand across her tears, her damp skin, her rough bagging overall. And then she says, I suppose I ought to say that he isn't right in the head and that I'm married. So we better not meet. But oh, she cried. And I felt as though after much fumbling with damp matches and many doubts as to whether there were, was any oil in the wick. I had lit the lamp at last. I want to see him so, 
I, it's wrong. I know it's wrong. But I am so glad Chris wants to see me too. Aw. Which is very sweet. And also a good reminder that Jenny's been put in a weird position here. Jenny's like, let me just go fetch my cousin's mistress. Try to do a little matchmaking. Not mistress. It's also important to remember. Well, no, hope, mis- hopeful mistress. <laughs> <laughs> Fingers crossed. But it is, especially because we broke halfway through, it is, I should reiterate here, that all of this happened, everything between Chris and Margaret happened five years before he even met Kitty. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So this is, they have gone their separate ways. Yeah. She's married. So far, neither of them have done anything wrong. Jenny explains that, in fact, Kitty has sent her to come retrieve Margaret. And in a beautiful bit of characterization, <laughs> Margaret says, she must have a lovely nature. Oh. And... Jenny's no. Jenny's response. <laughs> I lost suddenly the thread of the conversation. <laughs> Jenny's like, what? No, no, she just, she's awful. Wait, <laughs> I could. What were you talking about? <laughs> I could not talk about Kitty. She appeared to me at that moment a faceless figure with flounces, just as most of the servants at Baldry Court appear to me as faceless figures with caps and aprons. There were only two real people in the world. Chris and this woman whose personality was sounding through her squalor like a beautiful voice singing in a darkened room. (laughs) She's a beautiful little piggy in her nasty little sty. And also I just, what a beautiful way to say. (laughs) Just like, she must have a lovely nature. And you're like, I lost track of the conversation at that point. (laughs) You're just like, oh, sorry, I blacked out. What What were we talking about? (laughs) That made me laugh out loud when I read it the first time. I was just like, ooh, girl. Jenny's just like, uh, oh, you're nice. (laughs) That is very much the vibe. Yeah. Anytime Margaret says anything about Kitty, it's lovely. And Jenny's always just like, oh, um, no, uh, you're you're a nice person. Sure. Just like, (laughs) sure. Yeah. So she convinces Margaret to come. Margaret's husband appears. He, uh, what's going on? He is described as. A lank man with curly gray hairs growing from every place where it is inadvisable that hairs should grow. Hmm. Tear ducts. <laughs> Tongue. So we Jenny makes sure that we know that her husband, also unattractive. Also looks poor. Yeah. Yeah. Poor and gross. Ugh. But is devoted to her, or at least seems to be more or less. And she explains to him that a friend of hers has been injured. She does the like housewife mom thing. I'm going away, and in case I'm not back for supper, there's a thing in the, and you put it in the oven, and mm-hmm. you have this to, like, she has to walk him through. Yeah. You know, this is how to feed yourself. He's like, sorry, I can't hear you. All the hair growing out of my ears. <laughs> <laughs> Can you write and it down? He's, he, he seems a little clueless, but decent enough. Oh, okay, honey. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. He's like, oh, I'll go down to the pub and hang out with my friend. Yeah. Then she comes back wearing the same raincoat hat and skirt that they saw her in the first time big mistake and jenny says i first defensively clenched my hands it would have been such agony to the fingertips to touch any part of her apparel what (laughs) no one's asking you to it's literally once a page (laughs) you're just like jenny let it go oh god you're so gross sorry um please come with me (laughs) please come this way i'm trying to pimp you out to my uh cousin (laughs) It's a little bit got the vibe of that old Austin Powers thing where he just keeps saying mold. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but it's just like clothes. (laughs) 
Every time Margaret walks in, Jenny's just like, clothes, clothes, clothes. Oh, God. Gross. Oh, gross. Sorry. What were we talking about? Sorry. <laughs> You're so gross. Um, how, And how are you today? Oh, this is your husband? That's gross. It's so gross. Um, <laughs> And Margaret is so sweet that it is never made entirely clear whether she catches or is internalizing how awful Jenny is being to her in her own head. Mm-hmm. But the one little slip we get is that as they're leaving together and they're about to get in the car, she pauses in the front garden and she looks back at the house and she says, it's a horrid little house, isn't it? And Jenny says, it isn't very nice. Oh, <laughs> that seems very British. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where you do something self-deprecatory, but then the other person agrees with it. That's not... Yeah. Yeah, that's very aristocratic. But Jenny does say that it has a pretty name. The house's name is Mariposa. Wait, even the little suburb townhouses had Basically, all names? English houses have names. Good God. That's, their th- that's a thing. Even a duplex? I think so, yeah. I mean, probably not like apartments, but it's very normal for even just normal-ass row houses to have names. Hmm. And as like a little peek at the person that Margaret still is deep down despite her unfortunate marriage which we'll get into in a moment when Jenny says uh, that Mariposa is a lovely name Margaret says ah isn't it with the smile of the inveterate romanticist it's Spanish you know for butterfly it is that is true whether she named it herself or was drawn to it you can see that Margaret is still nursing a spark of romanticism and and beauty inside of her and uh She's weird about the chauffeur. Says she was she was afraid of the chauffeur, as uh. the poor are always afraid of manservants. Which is a very funny thing because she has a maid once again. Yeah, Margaret has a maid. Afraid of the chauffeur. I'm assuming she doesn't elaborate on. Jenny doesn't elaborate on that. Not really. Now, what do you think that means? I Uncomfortable th- by the display of wealth. I think it is one of those things where we are meant to understand that Margaret is just. A little uncomfortable and awkward because it's weird to be weighted on someone hand and foot when you're not used to it. Yeah, it is. And that Jenny is phrasing it as the poor are always afraid of manservant. They're not afraid. They just don't. It's just weird. They they just don't know how to treat other human beings like invisible props. It's confusing and uncomfortable. She didn't even ignore the, the coachman properly. Right. I do I do Margaret. Think, I do think that is very much yeah. what's happening she here between acknowledged the lines. him. And so they get in the car and they head back to the estate. And in the car, Margaret tells Jenny her side of the whole story about Chris. Monkey Island. And when they fell in love on Monkey Island. Yeah. And again, I'm gonna kind of gloss over the romantic, you know, the deep romanticness of it all. Uh-huh. It's really lovely. Sure. Again, we're in Jenny's head. And so we're watching Jenny kind of react to this in real time. Just not listen to any of it and just be like, gross. <laughs> uh, and she... With her poor little mouth. She starts out saying, It was strange how both Chris and she spoke of it as though it were not a place, but a magic state which largely explained the actions performed in it. And then as they get further into the story, and we get to the point where Margaret and Chris are really obviously in love... Mm-hmm. Margaret gets to the point where it's getting kind of hot and heavy and she sort of cuts off and begins to stammer. And Jenny says, Jenny, Jenny in turn cuts her off. And Jenny's like, no, I want to hear it. <laughs> no, Jenny's like, I know about all that. I said quickly, I was more afraid 
that I should feel envy or any base oh. passion in the presence of this woman than I had ever been of anything else in my life. Oh, God. Yeah. Huh. Uh-huh. Okay. Huh. <laughs> okay. But she asks, more importantly, how Margaret and Chris came to part. Yeah, that's a fair question. Which is important. Yeah. And it turns out that he couldn't answer she these questions three. <laughs> Take the ferry under the bridge across to Monkey Island. And then she drowned him. Yes. Yes. No, it's, and I think this is West kind of making a point of redirecting us, at least for a moment, to how young these people really are. Because it turns out that the first fight that kind of sets them on a path to separation is that she is on the island. It's the afternoon. She's just hanging out with a guy from the nearby village who she's grown up with. They've known each other for years. Mm -hmm. It's not anything serious. Yeah, just friends. It's not even romantic. And he's making her laugh a lot. He's doing something silly. She's laughing a lot. Chris is furious. Yeah, how in, dare you? In the way of a jealous young man. Would I mean, would Chris and Margaret ever really be able to get together anyway, though, if it had all gone well? Because isn't he, like, super rich and she's the innkeeper's daughter on Monkey Island? Well, that's a really good question and yeah. one that we never really get a solid answer for. But as this first fight is shaping up, he's going after her for this, you know. How dare you laugh? Exactly. The way that Margaret phrases it, she says, and then he went on talking and then it struck me he wasn't trusting me as he would trust a girl of his own class. Oh. And I told him so. And he went on being cruel. Hmm. And finally, he storms off and they don't see each other again. They never see each other again. Yeah. But it turns out, too, that right at this moment, which is the last night that they were together, was also the last night that he was staying with his uncle before he was summoned home. You remember in the first half where we were talking about how he had to take over the family business? Yeah. Kind of unexpectedly. Yeah. Right after this, we find out he is summoned home by his father, who has run the family business into the ground, uh -huh. is at risk of bankruptcy, and he sends Chris off to Mexico, uh. where the family owns silver mines, okay. which, by the way, a uh, forgotten chapter of sort of horrible colonialist history. Yeah. Uh, a bunch of English families owned silver mines in Mexico around this time. Yeah. And it's super good. I, it's not yeah. a problem. I assume it all went well. Yep. And continues to. Yeah. Okay. So good. <clears throat> okay. So he sends him off to Mexico to go colonialism. And then things just kind of happen. But also. So he didn't know about that beforehand. That's not why he got mad at no. Margaret. No. He knew he had to leave. He did not realize he was about to get saddled with the future of the family business. Hmm. At the same time, three days after he leaves, her father suddenly dies. Oh, no. She inherits the inn. Does not feel up to keeping she she inherits the inn in the island and all of her father's debts oh yeah he wasn't running a tight ship he was not and also they were leasing it they didn't from the monkeys actually oh, they, from the monkey yeah yeah absolutely and um, she doesn't want to be queen of the monkeys no she wants to make her own way yes but yes. She, she's gonna cross that river they didn't actually own get the building or the land they were renting it right and so she transfers the lease to somebody else and then goes on to be a governess and the first family she works for, a, not even a governess, a nanny, because she doesn't have the education. Ew. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
But the first family she works for are apparently also having financial problems and they straight up leave the country without paying her. Is anyone not having financial problems? Well, there was a massive... I would need to check the years. Just every British period piece that I have watched or read or whatever, it's always like, well, we live in this giant castle, but actually we're broke. And everyone else is too. I don't know. It seems to be a common theme. The Victorian era into the early 20th century. And you could even go back as far as, as the Georgian and the Regency periods. Literarily, from Jane Austen up through what we're reading now. Yeah. It is the slow disintegration of the English aristocracy mm-hmm. and their accompanying panic. Yeah. Just in a long, in a long line. Long, slow slope. As the middle class becomes increasingly affluent. Yeah. As new money becomes more and more powerful. As the incredible amounts of wealth that certain families had managed to hoard as a byproduct of feudalism mm-hmm. runs out. Because yeah. feudalism isn't a thing anymore. So that's why it's such a recurring theme. Because yeah. it was basically like 300 years of the aristocracy going, oh no! <laughs> why me? But I'm too pretty to work. <laughs> and look, in my opinion, we're all too pretty to work. Very true. But uh, I don't really know we're how... We're all too hot to work. We are. Every single one of us. You yeah. listening, I don't know if you're doing the dishes or commuting to work, but if you are listening to this right now, You are too hot to work. You are. Don't you forget it. And I'm sorry that capitalism is doing this to you. Yeah. Anyway. Mm -hmm. Margaret. She had a tough go of it. Yeah. She. She's nannying for this new family, but they're losing everything as well. Yeah. They just dip out. They just just leave. They leave the country and do not pay her. Uh Oh. She's left penniless. And she very sweetly is like, it's almost enough to make you think bad of people when they do things like that. Because this is who Margaret is. She just really thinks the best of everyone. She's nice. She then finds another family to nanny for. And the brother of the wife and mother of the family that she's nannying for Mm -hmm. begins to court her. Yeah. And that turns out to be Mr. Gray. And that crossing of class lines was like fine. She was nannying, it sounds like, for middle class. Okay. Mr. Gray doesn't have any money. So she was not. She was... He's just a poor uncle. She was a glorified babysitter. Okay. When, when So when I say she was nannying for a family, these were not. Much yeah. like she has a maid. Oh, right. She could have had a nan. It's. Sure. Does that make sense? Okay. Jenny somewhat astutely says that she suspects Mr. Gray's courtship of Margaret consisted of an incessant winding up of her protective instinct. Hmm. And Margaret goes on to explain that Mr. Gray's never been very successful and has a weak chest. So he's like, I see you nannying that kid over there. How about you come nanny me? Uh huh. How about you nanny a real man? Very much so, yes. (laughs) (laughs) That is exactly what is happening. You've been nannying kids this whole time. Step on up to the plate. And so they have moved around a lot because there's a side note about. The particular towns in which Mr. Gray's lung ailments seem to clear up are maybe the more fun ones. Oh. You know, that kind of thing. He's never been good with money. Mm -hmm. It doesn't sound like he's ever taken very good care of her. Okay. She's taken very good care of him. Yeah, she's a good mommy wife. And this has been her whole adult life. Okay. Poor Margaret. Poor Margaret, indeed. Yeah. And after all of this, something happens, which we are not given any real explanation of yet. 
she decides that she desperately needs to go back to Monkey Island, that she wants to go see... Planet of the Apes 3, Return to Monkey Island. <laughs> yes. She the wants, final chapter. She wants to go see the inn and revisit this place that was very important to her, not just because of Chris. Because of her dad. Exactly. And, stuff. and she goes back and new people have taken over it since the people that she transferred the lease to. Mm-hmm. And the people she had originally transferred the lease to had promised to forward any mail that she received. Uh-oh. It's since been taken over by someone else. She shows up and she introduces herself and they're like, oh, we got a bunch of letters for you. Uh-huh. Oh, oh no. Classic miscommunication. And they, and this is delightful, it's very specifically noted that it's also a father and daughter, just like she and her dad were. Uh-huh. And the daughter takes Mr. Gray out into the garden pretty forcefully. Yeah. So that the father can give her all of these letters without him seeing. And then she, it's implied, it's very much in between the lines, but she clearly has some kind of massive breakdown because Mm -hmm. there's like 15 letters from Chris there for her. Yeah. And he puts her in a chair and is like, I'm so sorry. You know, the people who promised to forward you your mail were drunks and they wound up leaving and Mm. very sweetly like gives her a minute. Yeah. To put herself back together. It's nice that they kept all those letters for her. And then she doesn't read them until she gets the telegraph from Chris. Oh. And then she What if reads- they're all just like, you bitch, like, <laughs> I never liked you anyway. And another thing. <laughs> she specifically didn't read them because she thought it was her duty to her husband. Oh, that's nice. And then she got the telegraph from Chris and she couldn't resist. Yeah. And they were apparently like, I would have read them. Beautiful. Aww. Like he he was asking for her. Aww. This also means that while he doesn't remember it. While he was with Kitty, he was writing Margaret letters. No. no. Oh, okay. He was trying to reach her and thought she had abandoned him. Oh. It means he probably was trying to marry her. But couldn't get a hold of her. But couldn't track her down. Thought she didn't want him anymore. And then he turned around and married and Kitty. He's like, all right, let's do this. Fine. Pretty much. Well. Yeah. Sure is too bad. Yep. <laughs> what does Jenny say to this? What is what, what does old Jennifer <laughs> think of all this? <laughs> She's just like, mm, gross. <laughs> old Jennifer, this is and so just as this concludes, they have arrived at the house. Of course. They're you know, they're going up the drive and Jenny's looking at the flower beds. And reflecting that the flower beds on either side of the drive don't actually look much better than they would if they had been left wild. Mm. And that there's no aesthetic reason for the border. They're but not, they're not greasy enough. Its <laughs> use is purely philosophic. It proclaims that here we esteem only controlled beauty, that the wild will not have its way within our gates, that it must be made delicate and decorated into felicity. Surely she must see that this was no place for beauty that had been not mellowed but lacerated by time, that no one accustomed to live here could help wincing at such external dinginess as hers. She's like, oh, take a look at our flower beds. Don't you like them? (laughs) (laughs) But instead, she said, it's a big place. Chris must have worked hard to keep all this up. The pity of this woman was like a flaming sword. No one had ever before pitied Chris for the magnificence of Baldry Court. It had been our pretense that by wearing costly clothes and organizing a costly life, we had been the servants of his desire. 
But she revealed the truth that, although he did indeed desire a magnificent house, it was a house not built with hands. Aww. So Jenny's feeling great about all this. <laughs> you know, that was quite insightful of old Jen. And uh, of old spinster Jen. Yeah. And she admits it to herself. She does. She's like my hot cousin who I'm in love with. <laughs> she's very, she is so obviously in love with him. I guess that was a thing they did. Yeah. I mean, if not. Because I'm like, ew, gross. But I get like, they married their cousins. Yeah. Also, I think we contemporarily are a little bit more um, turned off by inbreeding. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was actually going to say that we are a little more intense about assigning a certain intensity to only romantic love. That's true. And I think the argument could be made that Jenny is in love with Chris romantically and sexually. Mm -hmm. I think the argument could also be made that Jenny just loves, just loves him, him extraordinarily deeply as family, as almost a little bit of a child figure. She's got this deep-seated caretaking instinct. Mm -hmm. And also, importantly, her whole world revolves around him. Yeah. And she has no real choice in the matter on that front. Yeah. So it can go either way, that's I true. think, that's in true. my opinion. Yeah, that's a good thing to keep in mind, that like her entire job has been made to be him. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, and she's good at her job. She's so good at it. <laughs> we get Margaret inside the house. There's a whole extended paragraph Margaret, about... leave from this place. How there's a beautiful Away. nymph statuette, and Jenny's like, you look so Nothing awful. like it. <laughs> Compared to that nymph statuette. Gaze upon it and see all that you are not. It's bad. She seems to be comforting herself with this idea that when Chris sees her, he's going to recoil from her because of mm -hmm. how changed she has been over time. Yeah. And she makes this comment about how Chris's whole conception of women is these beautiful nymph-like, well you know, expensively dressed women like Jenny and Kitty. Mm-hmm. And... She says, I previsioned what must happen in the next five minutes. Down there by the pond, he would turn at the sound of those heavy boots on the path, and with one glance, he would assess the age of her, the rubbed surface of her, the torn fine texture, and he would show to her squalid mask just such a blank face as he had shown to Kitty's piteous mask the night before. Although I had a gift for self-pity, I knew her case would be then worse than mine. For it would be worse to see, as she would see, the ardor in his eyes give place to kindliness than never to have seen ardor there. He would hesitate. She would make one of her harassed gestures and trail away with the wet, patient look which was her special line. <laughs> he would go back to his boyish sport with the skiff. I hoped the brown waters would not seem too kind. She would go back to Mariposa, sit on her bed, and read those letters. Sure, Jenny. <laughs> so she sends. It could Mar happen. It could. So she sends Margaret out. She goes upstairs and she finds Kitty hanging out in the nursery again. Drying her hair? No. Ah. Yeah. And Jenny has this weird moment where she just starts hyper focusing on all of the nice, expensive things in the house. Yeah. Because she thinks that's going to protect her psychologically. Yeah. She, she specifically says that she is not going to acknowledge, quote, the tremendous implications of the fact that Kitty had come to her dead child's nursery, although she had not washed her hair. She said, not right now. Like, 
I'm not going to think about that. I'm not doing it. <laughs> and from the window. Look at how expensive this carpet is. <laughs> Isn't that a nice carpet? That is Kitty, exact- look at the carpet. Look how. Look, look at, at the carpet, Kitty. <laughs> you remember how much this cost? I do. But the two of them watch from the window of the nursery as Margaret approaches Chris. And she's like, this is it. This is the moment. Yeah. <laughs> and he runs toward Margaret. Oh. And he starts to fall. And it says, I saw Jenny's her- like, he's going to slap her. <laughs> <laughs> she's hoping. She's yeah. hoping against hope. But instead, I saw her arms brace him with a gesture that was not passionate, but rather the movement of one carrying a wounded man from under fire. But even when she had raised his head to the level of her lips, the central issue was not decided. I covered my eyes and said aloud, in a minute he will see her face, her hands. But although it was a long time before I looked again, they were still clinging breast to breast. It was as though her embrace fed him. He looked so strong as he broke away. They stood with clasped hands looking at one another. They stood straight. They looked delightedly. I reflected while Kitty shrilly wept. How entirely right Chris had been in the in his assertion that to lovers innumerable things do not matter. <laughs> like, wow, love really is blind, I guess. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Trash. And so begins this period where Margaret and Chris are deeply, deeply in love with one another. Mm-hmm. Jenny is continuing. She's like, to- any day now, he's going <laughs> to snap out of it. That's Kitty's approach. Kitty is convinced. Kitty is losing it. Yeah. And Jenny is doing this thing which started in the nursery where she is just obsessively kind of cataloging how expensive and nice her life is. Yeah. As if it will protect her from all of this. Yeah. She's just. Chris is like, I don't I don't love you and I don't want to be here. And she's like, yes, well, I well, my wardrobe cost this much and the painting cost that did you know how expensive our dinner what do you know how much we pay the servants so i don't know if you know um how much the silverware is but it's very expensive i have a couple of overly relatable passages for you okay relatable what do you think of me i think i think no i think relatable for all of us because it says she says that she settled into a mood of intense perception in which my strained mind settled on every vivid object that came under my eyes and tried to identify myself with its brightness and its lack of human passion. Mm. I stood for long looking up at a fine tracery of bare boughs against the hard, high spring sky while the cold wind rushed through my skirts and chilled me to the bone because I was afraid that when I moved my body and my attention, I might begin to think. Ah. Indeed, grief is not the clear melancholy the young believe it. It is like a siege in a tropical city. The skin dries and the throat parches as though one were living in the heat of the desert. Water and wine taste warm in the mouth, and food is of the substance of the sand. One snarls at one's company. Thoughts prick one through sleep like mosquitoes. Ah. Yeah. And so she is... She is very shallowly like, if I just keep thinking about these beautiful objects, then I won't have to think about anything else. I can defend myself against losing Chris to Margaret. Yeah. But it is also to take a moment to be a little more sympathetic to Kitty, who, by the way, is just draping herself across various pieces of furniture and Mm -hmm. kind of refusing to move. Sure. 
princess. None of them know how this is going to end. Yeah. Kitty and Jenny are entirely dependent on Chris. I mean, describing it as grief, I mean, that's that's accurate. You can grieve the life that you have had up to this point and thought you were going to continue to have. Well, they're also entirely dependent on him logistically. Yeah. If he decides to abandon them and go make a life with Margaret, they're f- They have nothing. They have nothing. Yeah. He controls all of the finances. It's his estate, mm-hmm. his family line, his house. There's no child, right? Right. He could throw them both out. Yeah. It would look bad societally, but he could, he could do it. Yeah. They couldn't stop him. Yeah. So it is, you know. This, there are stakes. There are stakes. <laughs> yeah. There are high stakes other yeah. than just Chris being in love. It's like, oh, no, I might have to go live in a greasy brick house. Yeah. But they settle into this uneasy routine where Margaret is coming to the house frequently. Kitty is draping herself across various pieces of furniture face down. Mm-hmm. And Jenny is just taking long walks and trying not to think about how viciously jealous she is. Yeah. Mm. of what Chris and Margaret have. Yeah. And she finally concludes that Chris is lost to her forever. Oh. In part because she is so thoroughly categorized as not just his caretaker, but sort of she's she's existentially responsible for him and she can't bear to hurt him. And so she's just spending all of her time kind of standing slightly off stage left while he and Margaret spend time together trying to look reassuring. She doesn't see a life where he and Margaret are together and she's still in the picture as a cousin or she thinks it's Margaret or no one. She hasn't gotten that far, I don't think. Yeah, okay. But she says, I was too busy reassuring him by showing a steady, undistorted profile crowned by a neat, proud sweep of hair instead of the tear-darkened mask he feared to ever have enough vitality left over to enjoy his presence. I spoke in a calm voice full from the chest, quite unfluted with agony. I read Country Life with ponderous interest. (laughs) I kept my hands, which I desired to wring, in doeskin gloves for most of the day. I played with the dogs a great deal and wore my thickest tweeds. I pretended that the slight heaviness of my features is a correct indication of my temperament. Neither she nor Kitty know how to do anything but maintain a beautiful illusion that will make him happy. And neither of them can bear to let him know how much pain they are in. Yeah. Rightly or wrongly, you know. Yeah. He genuinely doesn't remember. Would it be better or more acceptable for them to let him know how cruel that really is, even if it's not a cruelty he's inflicting on purpose? Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Unclear. Yeah. But he and Margaret are so, so happy. And it says that Margaret was very different now. She had a little smile in her eyes as though she were listening to a familiar air played far away. Her awkwardness seemed indecision as to whether she should walk or dance to that distant music. What about her husband? Ah, We've just kind of tucked him off to the side. Yeah, he's fine. We're not worried about it. Okay. And Jenny finally, this is kind of the penultimate scene, Jenny finally comes to terms with this. She really sees Margaret and Chris and their love for what it is, which is something that is truly wonderful for them both. Yeah. And she concludes, It became plain that if madness means a liability to wild error about the world, Chris was not mad. It was our peculiar shame that he had rejected us when he had attained to something saner than sanity. 
His very loss of memory was a triumph over the limitations of language, which prevent the mass of men from making explicit statements about their spiritual relationships. Huh. So she concludes essentially that Chris was never happy, maybe with either of them, and that however it has happened, whatever it means, he has found happiness yeah. by forgetting them. Ouch. Uh-huh. And she goes for this long walk in the woods where she is trying to come to terms with all of this and she's turning it over and over in her mind and she has this kind of extended funny little dream vision where Chris is back behind the front and he's presented with two crystal balls one of which has Margaret in it on Monkey Island and one of which has Jenny and Kitty in it and he picks up the one with Margaret in it as the other rolls off of a table and smashes onto the ground. It's kind of a dream sequence almost. Yeah. She comes to terms with all of it. She accepts that Margaret is a wonderful person. <laughs> Who? A wonderful, disgusting little piggy. Yes, she is. She goes back and forth, you know. She can't help but get in one last. Uh, <laughs> she was not so much a person as an implication of dreary poverty. Like an open door in a mean house that lets out the smell of cooking cabbage and the screams of children. Yeah. But she finally comes out of the woods and she sees them on the ground. You know, they've pulled out a rug. Chris hasn't been sleeping well because he finds his bedroom so alien uh. because it's not his bedroom as he remembers it. Yeah. And he is asleep with his head in Margaret's lap uh. and she's just sitting there quietly making yeah. sure that he's warm and that he feels loved. And it says, They sat englobed in peace as in a crystal sphere, and I knew it was the most significant as it was the loveliest attitude in the world. It means that the woman has gathered the soul of the man into her soul and is keeping it warm in love and peace so that his body can rest quiet for a little time. Okay. So she's finally accepted that <laughs> Margaret can give Chris something that she and Kitty just can't offer him. Yeah. Well, it's all about, like, the roles of women. The role to, like, keep a pretty house and keep this happy life and, you know, make it look good. Or mm -hmm. is the role to, like, be their emotional receptacle? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, and we're going we're gonna to talk about yeah. that. What's important here is that what she is offering him is not what she offered her husband, right? It's not servitude and babying and infantilization. Yeah. It's the safety and the comfort of feeling completely at ease with her. Yeah. She makes him feel... Acceptance and love. Yeah. Yeah. And Kitty and Jenny just can't do that for him. They're just like, what is that? <laughs> and Jenny even admits to herself that since... He and Margaret have been spending so much time together that she is more relaxed. Oh. Importantly, in part because as long as Chris doesn't have his memory, he can't be sent back to the front. Oh. So Margaret, in a way, is keeping him safe, both mm. emotionally and physically. Yeah. As long as he's lost those 15 years. He's they, not fit for service. He's not fit for service. Yeah. And it says... His soldierly knowledge was as deeply buried as this memory of that awful August. While her spell endured, they could not send him back into the hell of war. This wonderful, kind woman held his body as safely as she held his soul. Hmm. Well, that's good. Unfortunately. Oh. 
Oh boy. This little tableau of them by the pond. Mm -hmm. Jenny has come to find them to let them know that a new doctor has arrived to try and cure Chris (laughs) and would like to see all of them, including Margaret. And his name is Sigmund Freud. (laughs) (laughs) Close. (laughs) Honestly, I do feel like his name is Gilbert Anderson, and I Ah. do feel like he's meant to be like a Sigmund Freud character. Yeah. Dr. Gilbert Anderson has showed up, and he's completely different from all of the other pointless doctors that have been coming in and out of the house. Yes. And he takes a walk with Chris. Mm -hmm. Margaret, suddenly self-conscious, wants to take off her outerwear and they take her in the house, which they hadn't really been doing. She and Chris had <laughs> almost exclusively been hanging out in the garden. You stay outside. Jenny takes Margaret up to her room and she asks if she can redo her hair, which Jenny makes sure we know is ugly. Ooh, nasty. Uh-huh. And and then goes, you have such lovely hair. <laughs> your hair is as lovely as you are capable of making it. But Margaret, there's a picture on Jenny's vanity of Oliver, the baby. Mm-hmm. And Margaret asks who it is and of course chris has no memory of having lost a child yeah so he never told her anything about him jenny explains margaret wigs out Mm. it turns out margaret also lost a child Mm. that was the same age as chris's child there's definitely some like metaphysical stuff happening here where they both had children who were exactly the same age who died at exactly the same age Mm -hmm. and margaret at least seems to think that there's some kind of connection connection yeah. here. And what she says is they each had half a life. Hmm. People were a lot more open to that kind of metaphysical stuff than I think we are now. So that like, was big at the time, yeah. We'll, we'll put a pin in it. Sure. But the fact remains that she has just found out that Chris lost a little boy. She also lost a little boy. They go back downstairs to see the doctor. Chris isn't there. The doctor is explaining to Kitty that Chris has amnesia. <laughs> Kitty's like, yeah. <laughs> I know. Well, the doctor says his unconscious self is refusing to let him resume his relationship with his normal life. And so we get this loss of memory. And Kitty says, I've always said that if he would make an effort. (laughs) And the doctor says, effort. The mental life that can be controlled by effort isn't the mental life that matters. You've been stuffed up when you were young with talk about a thing called self-control, a sort of barmaid of the soul that says, time's up, gentlemen, and here you've had enough. There's no such thing. And he goes on to explain in like true Freudian fashion that Chris's amnesia is the manifestation Mm -hmm. of a suppressed desire. Yes. And to not... Be married to you, Kitty. And he and Kitty get into a very bitchy fight. <laughs> she gets real mad, which con- concludes with her say, her declaring, I tell you, he was not discontented till he went mad. <laughs> That's right, Kitty. And tell the, him. And the doctor at that point pivots to Jenny and says, He's like, I can't with you. You've known him longest. And Jenny immediately says, Nothing and everything was wrong. I've always felt it. A sharp movement of Kitty's body confirmed my deep old suspicion that she hated me. (laughs) (laughs) And then they go into his parents and whether he had a good relationship with them, which is no. And the psychologist says he turned to sex then with a particular need. And Margaret pipes up. Uh Uh-oh. And says, yes, he was always dependent. And then everyone in the room goes, (laughs) how would you know? That is very much the tone. Yeah. Very importantly to me, at no point in all of this, what could Chris possibly be trying to forget back and forth? Does anyone mention the war? 
Huh. It does not come up. Really? Not yep. even the doctor? Nope. Really? Yep. Which I think is really important, right? Because that it shows you what the attitudes were. Yeah. From the home front. Like it couldn't it couldn't possibly be the horrific carnage. No. Could it be fighting for your country? That's your duty. Exactly. Yeah. But Margaret, after basically telling a room full of people that she and Chris definitely boned when they were younger. Yeah. Immediately pivots and says, essentially challenges the doctor with, what's the use of talking? You can't cure him or make him happy, I mean. All you can do is make him ordinary. Mm -hmm. And the doctor responds, I grant you, that's all I do. It queerly seemed as though he was experiencing the relief one feels on meeting an intellectual equal. It's my profession to bring people from various outlying districts of the mind to the normal. There seems to be a general feeling it's the place where they ought to be. Sometimes I don't feel the urgency myself. So <laughs> so I understand what they're talking about, except that Margaret is drawing a distinction between curing him and making him normal. So what she's saying is you can't make him happy. Mm -hmm. All you will do is make him normal. You can make him remember the last 15 years. Yeah. It's not going to make him happy. Got it. Okay. This isn't in his best interest, essentially. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And the doctor essentially agrees with her. Yeah. He's like, yeah, it's not, but that's my job. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. And, you know, for better or worse, Margaret's not the person paying him. Kitty is. Twoo. And then Margaret silences the room again and... She and the doctor on a wavelength. Yeah, they're vibing. With the reminder that Jenny's narration is not reliable. Uh -huh. Margaret actually is very clever. <laughs> yeah. At the end of the day. Yeah. And she immediately turns to the doctor and says, I know how to cure him. I know what will bring him back. The letters? No. No. Sex? No. No. And the doctor says, well, I'm willing to learn. And then it says. Monkey Island. No. <laughs> Remind him of the boy, said Margaret. Oh. The doctor ceased suddenly to balance on the balls of his feet. What boy? They had a boy. He looked at Kitty. You told me nothing of this. I didn't think it mattered, she answered. What? And shivered and looked cold, as she always did at the memory of her unique contact with death. He died five years ago. The doctor dropped his head back, stared at the cornice. <laughs> the doctor's like... <laughs> and said with the soft malignancy of a clever person dealing with the slow-witted these yeah. subtle discontents are often the most difficult to deal with yeah sharply he turned to margaret how would you remind him take him something the boy wore some toy he played with their eyes met wisely it would have to be you that did it her face assented kitty said I don't understand. How does it matter so much? What? She repeated it twice before she broke the silence that Margaret's wisdom had brought down on us. I didn't even think of this possibility because I also did not. I I feel like the doctor where I'm like, how the fuck did you not bring this up already? Yep. Did just absolutely did not occur to her. So you wore your wedding dress. Uh-huh. But you weren't like, hey, do you remember our child? Yeah. And... Kitty cannot seem to grasp why this wouldn't be important. But once they decide that that's the course of action, she's basically like, get on with it. Is it go on? Do we think that Kitty doesn't? Under, do we think that it's too painful for Kitty? It oh, hopefully doesn't <laughs> seem that way. Really? So 
Jenny and Margaret go up to the nursery to get some things that belonged to Oliver, the little boy. Mm -hmm. And there's this brief but very intense moment where they get up there and they're looking through the things and Margaret is drawing comparisons between the life of her little boy and the life of this little boy and the things that they respectively had. Mm -hmm. And Margaret makes a comment about essentially what it boils down to is if a little boy that was this rich could die for no reason, then anyone's child can die for no Uh. reason, which is tragic, but also a really important note about the sort of, you know, Jenny has been obsessing over this idea that these beautiful things, this beautiful house, this beautiful life will keep her safe from the horrors, right? Yeah. And they're standing in a space that is a a horror, an acute reminder that that is not the case. Yeah. Rich people's children die, poor people's children die. We are currently in a middle in the middle of a war. Yeah. Where rich and poor people's children are dying at an astonishing rate. Yeah. In a foreign country. Yeah. But Margaret loses well Margaret basically gets up there and is like, I can't do it. Oh. I can't do it. Yeah, I don't blame her. And I shouldn't do it, right? And Jenny is finally on her side. And Jenny's like, no, we cannot do this to Chris. He's happy. And all we're going to do is make him unhappy. I was thinking that she meant Margaret shouldn't be the one to do it. And I kind of agree that she's not the one to deliver that news. To not deliver the news at all, I truly don't know. I truly don't know what I think. Well, again, maintaining her status is the only character who really seems to understand the stakes of things that are happening around her. Yeah. Margaret says, I can't do it. Go out and put an end to the poor love's happiness. After the time he's had, the war and all, and then he'll have to go back there. I can't. Oh, if he did remember, he'd have to go back to the war. Okay, well, shit. Yeah. Now I really don't know. Yeah. Because I kind of feel like you should tell him about his child because he's not a child himself. But then if that means you're just sending him off to the war, maybe you shouldn't do that. Good Lord. Mm-hmm. And they almost they almost agree to just let it happen. And then Jenny and Margaret both have the same realization that you essentially just speed ran, which is dignity, his dignity. Mm-hmm. That by not telling him the truth, by not bringing him back to the fullness of reality, they are treating him like a child. Yeah. And it says, there is a draft that we must drink or not be fully human. I knew that one must know the truth. I knew quite well that when one is adult, one must raise to one's lips the wine of the truth, heedless that it is not sweet like milk, but draws the mouth with its strength and celebrate communion with reality or else walk forever queer and small like a dwarf. Thirst for this sacrament had made Chris strike away the cup of lies about life that Kitty's white hands held to him, and turned to Margaret with this vast, trustful gesture of his loss of memory. And helped by me, she had forgotten that it is the first concern of love to safeguard the dignity of the beloved. And she has a vision of him as an older man, senile, treated like he's crazy, Mm -hmm. having lost everyone's respect. Still thinking in his heart of hearts that he's 20. Yeah. And she and Margaret steal themselves. Margaret takes the two items that they've agreed are the most likely to bring him back. And she walks out into the garden to find him. And Jenny stays in the nursery. 
which again has that window that overlooks the whole garden. Uh-huh. And Kitty comes and finds her. <laughs> Man, so they really just let Margaret do it. Yep. Kitty's like, that's not my place. And I'm gonna I'm gonna read you <laughs> that's the not my last, job. I'm gonna read you the the conclusion. Okay. So Kitty comes into the nursery. She said, I wish she would hurry up. She's got to do it sooner or later. Oh, Kitty. My spirit was asleep in horror. Out there, Margaret was breaking his heart and hers, using words like a hammer, looking wise, doing it so well. Aren't they coming back? asked Kitty. I wish you'd look. There was nothing in the garden, only a column of birds swinging across the lake of green light that lay before the sunset. A long time after, Kitty spoke once more. Jenny, do look again. There had fallen a twilight, which was a wistfulness of the earth. Under the cedar boughs, I dimly saw a figure mothering something in her arms. Almost had she dissolved into the shadows. In another moment, night would have her. With his back turned on this fading unhappiness, Chris walked across the lawn. He was looking up under his brows at the overarching house, as though it were a hated place to which, against all his hopes, business had forced him to return. He stepped aside to avoid a patch of brightness cast by a lighted window on the grass. Lights in our house were worse than darkness. Affection here worse than hate elsewhere. He wore a dreadful, decent smile. I knew how his voice would resolutely lift in greeting us. He walked not loose-limbed like a boy, as he had done that very afternoon, but with the soldier's hard tread upon the heel. It recalled to me that, bad as we were, we were yet not the worst circumstance of his return. When we had lifted the yoke of our embraces from his shoulders, he would go back to that flooded trench in Flanders, under that sky more full of flying death than clouds, to that no man's land where bullets fall like rain on the rotting faces of the dead. Jenny, aren't they there? Kitty asked again. They're both there. Is he coming back? He's coming back. Jenny, Jenny, how does he look? Oh, how could I say it? Every inch a soldier. She crept behind me to the window, peered over my shoulder and saw. I heard her suck in her breath with satisfaction. He's cured, she whispered slowly. He's cured. The end. Oh my God. Yeah, that's uh, the note I wrote the first time I finished it. (laughs) It says, holy sh**. So that's the return of the soldier. And he's returned, probably to go get murdered. But he's going to go back again. Yeah. So, thoughts? Feelings? Huge bummer. (laughs) Yeah. It's real real cheerful. (sighs) I don't know. Interesting. A lot of discussion of class. Mm -hmm. Kind of familial and relationship duty. Mm Mm-hmm national duty during wartime and i think it's a really really interesting interpretation of what it is like to be with someone who comes back with ptsd or shell shock Mm -hmm. as they understood it because they they overtly say that he has shell shock in the novel yeah and this is referred to as a novel about ptsd yeah what's really interesting to me about it is that the way that she has spun out his affliction I think it captures the experience of being with someone who is so, so changed mm-hmm. 
the much more common narrative around PTSD and shell shock is the man who comes back changed and jumpy and violent and drinking heavily and who kind of becomes a menace. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is a valid story to tell, an important story to tell, a story that we've told a lot. Mm -hmm. But I think it also, there are certain people, people like Kitty, people like Jenny, who have an inherently difficult time sympathizing with a narrative like that Mm -hmm. because they can't envision themselves dealing with anything that common. Yeah. And I think that's something we fall into now is when you read narratives where a woman is staying with a man who is obviously being abusive, obviously wounding her, obviously frightening her, there are always going to be a certain number of people who are going to be like, why didn't you just leave? Yeah. And what this does is it portrays the sensation of having your loved one come back a, a person you don't know or understand Mm -hmm. who has been changed so much that they don't know you anymore yeah and made it all so prim and proper Mm -hmm. that you're stuck with it there's no good answer to this story there's no oh I would just do this yeah does that make sense well I think that it lays bare kind of the impossibility of these dual duties during wartime which is those on the home front what their duty is and those on the front lines what their duty is and on the front line it's like well you go and you fight and when you're able to you go back and you fight more and you fight and you give your body and you give your life for the country and you're so you give everything for your country you know and the people on the home front is like and your duty is to support the people on the front lines and be supportive and be happy and give them a happy life and yep they're giving it all so you give what you can to Make their life easier. And and it's just like by taking it up to like kind of these ridiculous levels of propriety and etiquette and everything, it actually lays the foundation of this bear as inherently impossible and kind of ridiculous. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, absolutely. It also kind of exposes the hollowness at the core of it all. Exactly. Yeah. And they're fighting so hard to maintain this beautiful illusion Mm-hmm. for Chris to come back to and he doesn't even fucking want it no That's and you could argue that 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 is a greater metaphor for like the soldiers who are fighting for this beautiful illusion of this mother country of England which is what you know which is wealth and inequality and and faceless servants and, yeah and not being able to marry people that you actually love yeah and, and also I don't think it's at all coincidental that if you look at this the this little domestic drama This is a situation that is so toxic for all of the people involved that they can't even carry on their lineage, right? None of them have living children. Yeah. These are all people whose whose dramas are wounding each other to various degrees, who are ruining their lives. Chris is probably not going to make it, let's be honest. And there's no there's no moving forward from that. There's no legacy. It's just it's just these people trapped in amber desperately trying to keep up appearances for each other yeah what's the point none of them are happy (laughs) yeah they're unhappy and they're not leaving a legacy for future you know like they're just they're not doing anything except being miserable together because it's what's expected and it all just begs the question why why are we doing this that's i kind of liked the psychologist or the doctor who was kind of like yeah i don't really agree with it either but i don't know i just do it because it's my job yeah like (laughs) i don't know i gotta fix them i guess yeah and you know, we don't we don't know if Chris would have been a good husband for Margaret. We don't know if their marriage would have 
worked. Mm -hmm. But it definitely seems like they would have been happier if they'd been able to try. Well, Jenny's description of him as he walks back towards the house in that final scene, you know, Margaret's told him they've processed it or talked about it or whatever outside. Sun has set and he's walking back in the twilight and it's getting darker, but she can still see his face. And just like the way she describes the emotions on his face and everything where he's just like he remembers the house now. He remembers his life there. He remembers his marriage. He remembers what he's supposed to do now. And he's just he just loathes it. Mm -hmm. But he also snaps to attention like the soldier who's just going to grin and bear it and do it because that's what he's supposed to do. Yep. And that is that sucks it's it's devastating and margaret's off like crying in the trees because she just gave up her happiness yeah she's gonna go home to her husband to her hairy little husband yeah (laughs) yay you know chris i guess the only one who's happy seems to be kitty (laughs) kitty is having a great time he's like i knew it all come up kitty in the end (laughs) and i think uh this seems like a good and important time when we're talking about Kitty and Kitty's character and what function Kitty is serving in the plot, we should remember that in World War One, the patriotic fever pitch was very, very high mm-hmm. and that women were still practicing the white feather. Are you familiar with the white feather? No. So I can't remember when this started. It it precedes World War One. I. I think World War One was the last time it was common. That during a war, if you saw a young, you know, fit man in the street who was not serving in the military. Oh, God. Young women would go around presenting them with white feathers to label them cowards for not serving, you know, king and country. And this practice was still very much alive in World War One. It's very important to remember that that stories like the Bowmen, like we were talking about before. Mm hmm drove a substantial portion of the public into this feverish intensity. Men who didn't enlist were less than men. They yeah. Were, they were putrid cowards and needed to be punished. Yeah. And this was a recurring theme throughout the war. And Kitty, I think, is very much that. Kitty is a woman who is happy to send other people into unimaginable horrors because it is the done thing Mm -hmm. and it doesn't keep her up at night at all yeah and those people are real oh yeah for sure jenny i I remember post 9 11 oh god yeah yeah yep we were all there it was bad i was young i was in a military family (sighs) i remember it and that's every time we have a conversation like this on the podcast it ends with like and we're still doing it today (laughs) Like, and nothing has changed. <laughs> Yay. I, well, my question is, what do we, and it's purely, you know, conjecture, what do the readers think, like, happens to Jenny after this? She seems like she's had some realizations, and she's thought about some stuff, and she has learned some things, and it's like, is she going to be able to forget that and go back to her old life or is she just going to keep on keeping on like yeah what I happens to Jenny I don't know how much faith do we have in Jenny I have a lot of faith in Jenny to just tamp those feelings right down yeah dig a big hole bury them real deep I think in her nice garden beds I think that is exactly what's going to yeah. happen to be honest yeah and I mean I think that's the only coping mechanism she knows <laughs> it, it literally is yeah just to read country living with ponderous interest and wear her thickest tweeds yeah and, she, and play with the dogs. Yeah. 
should play with those dogs. Love those dogs. Love those dogs. But I think the other really important subtext of this novel, not even subtext, <laughs> the text of this novel <laughs> is the extent to which all of these women, all three of these women, but especially Kitty and Jenny, are trapped in this like bizarre, mutually assured destruction reliance on Chris. And I think it's really important not to forget that. Their whole world revolves around him. Yeah. Because it has to. They don't have another option. Kitty can't just pick up and go be fabulous and dramatic on her own. No, she, she needs a rich landed husband to do that. Because she literally can't go live alone. Yeah. Right? I mean, she Margaret. doesn't know how. <laughs> <laughs> but also she can't just get a divorce. And she also like you. you she has no money. It is impossible to overstate the extent to which it was terrifying and impossible to be a single woman in this time period. Yeah, that's why Jenny lives with them. Jenny is Chris's dependent. Yeah. Kitty is Chris's dependent. Margaret married Mr. Gray because if she hadn't, she probably would have like literally died alone in a gutter. Yeah. You cannot support yourself as a woman because the few jobs that women can get don't pay enough for people to support themselves. Unless you're a madam. Well, yeah, but that's a whole other bag. <laughs> <laughs> We're not getting into that right now. Okay. Kitty wouldn't be able to let the attention not be on her. That's true. Yeah. And I think West is drawing us like a very clear portrait of what happens when you put women, when you put people in this position. Yeah. No one is happy. Yeah. And they're all f***ing stuck. Yeah. They are all stuck because Chris is infantilized. And also he's going to go die. And also he's going to go die. And all the other women have no lives of their own or purpose within the context of society and the value that society places on them on their own. They should all just go back to Monkey Island. <laughs> Honestly. Where, they, where they'll be accepted among the monkeys. <laughs> it's such a, a beautifully bleak ending because Chris is going back and he's either going to not come back at all mm -hmm. and leave Kitty and Jenny with what? With what? Who knows? Well, if he dies at war, doesn't Ki wouldn't Kitty get? Not necessarily. Oh, maybe the living male heir? Yeah. There's right. like a nephew, a nephew or something. Yeah, yeah. who knows? It's it's a mess. And this whole, this whole war is being waged theoretically to preserve, you know. This way this. of life. Yeah. yeah. And like, f why? Why? <laughs> yeah. That's the question. This is a man. Yeah, she's good. Rebecca West is good. This is good. She's so fucking cool. Yeah. We are running out of time, but she's she's a really interesting woman. And she, I think, was very familiar with this sort of catch-22 of being entirely dependent on a man that you very much loved, but also maybe couldn't rely on as much as you thought you could mm -hmm. for various reasons. Mm -hmm. Her father was a... Apparently, like, very fun man. Fun dad. Fun dad. Loving yeah. dad. Yeah. Very bad. Like, could not keep his shit together mm. to save his life. Mm -hmm. And they had constant money problems for yeah. her entire childhood. And her mom wound up just barely keeping the family afloat through, like, secretarial work and yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. They, they came from a good family. And then they pissed it all away. But there was no money. Okay. And again, that seemed to happen a lot. It did okay. all the time. Okay. And West spent a lot of her, especially like her adolescence, being surrounded by much richer children mm. and much richer families and girls and being treated like absolute shit. 
being treated the way Jenny treats Margaret. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Very much so. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons that I am so confident. You're so gracie. That's one of the reasons I'm so confident that Jenny is not a reliable narrator. Oh, yeah. For uh, sure. Clearly. Which is, which is not to say that, I mean, West does a fantastic job in the book itself. You can pick it up. But on top of that, this is an experience that I know West herself had consistently, which was being treated like stupid staff like a second class citizen Mm -hmm. but just because she didn't have money basically yeah Yeah. and it was a it was a consistent problem and then she had an affair with uh hg wells oh Uh uh-huh oh and then she had his illegitimate child oh Uh uh-huh interesting Uh uh-huh the west wells baby and uh a little bastard (laughs) and then she got shipped off to a cottage is that okay to say I don't know. I don't know either. She got shipped off to a cottage to birth her love child. And somewhere in all of that, she wrote this novel. But Wells also did not take good care. He was a he was a he was a bit of a petty tyrant. Mm. He did not take very good care of her. She ultimately broke free of him. But it was very, very messy. And he demanded a lot from her without giving a lot back and yeah. even though he, they met because he ostensibly respected her as a writer once they were in a relationship he very much treated her like uh, less than yeah yeah like he ex- he very much expected her to make him comfortable and yeah you know he was carrying he was married the whole time for starters mm-hmm. and also having additional affairs but anytime she threatened to leave him he got very petulant mm-hmm. and you know how it goes yeah he was a boy yeah and so these were when when she wrote this novel and i want to be very clear she goes on to have a fascinating career oh yeah this biography by lorna gibb called the extraordinary life of rebecca west is great it's very readable i can't recommend it enough yeah but what i have done so far on this podcast is we, we are just talking about the rebecca west that wrote the return of the soldier okay so 26 year old rebecca west yeah these have been the two defining relationships of her life. She was already with H.G. Wells by that time? Yes. Oh. That was, it was his baby. Right. So during World War I, she gets pregnant with his child and is sent to the countryside to have the child in secret. It's so interesting that she chose the narrator of the story to be Jenny rather than Margaret. Yes. Because I guess one would assume, based on her experience, that she would write with Margaret's voice. But she chose instead to write with the voice of you know i guess you could say like the girls who used to talk shit on her at school yeah <laughs> but um that's just it's an interesting choice and i think it allowed her to explore more of the dynamics more effectively yeah margaret is too much of an outsider jenny can say things about this stilted little life they're living that will i think land harder with people who are living exactly that same stilted little life well yeah i think if she had chosen margaret to be the narrator it would have come across as like sappy or idealistic or you know what i mean yeah like overly romantic yeah it would have it would have been it would have laid it on a bit thick from margaret's uh, yeah perspective. a bit thick and margaret's like, too nice yeah margaret's too nice to be a good narrator it would have been like an underdog story instead of like you know what i mean instead of like yes. this like class discussion no 100 <laughs> percent. yeah i mean she fascinating woman she was a an ardent suffragette until she decided that they were too prudish for her Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. Um, fantastic writer fantastic journal she met hg wells because she basically he put out a, a novel and she reviewed it and basically said like ain't shit. 
And he was like, I'll show you. Pretty much, yeah. He was like, this is a bad book. And he was like, ooh, hot. <laughs> but like I said, she she was not a Jenny or a Kitty or a Margaret. And she managed to shake him off and be objectively kind of a bad mother, but like whatever. And she went on to have <laughs> a really incredible career. Yeah. You know, it's cool stuff. Yeah. I... Lots of- Lots to think about. Lots to think about. And I, you know, this is another one of those books where I feel like we could just keep going and going, but we've we've hit the the top notes, I think. Yes. Well, that was the return of the soldier. What do you what do you think? I thought it I thought it was good. It was a uh... Yeah, it was a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I knew it would be. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for letting me take you on this journey. Come back next week to get bummed out again. No, nah, maybe we'll do something funny soon. I promise. Meh. But yeah, thank thank you, Lee, for letting me take you on a journey through Rebecca West. Oh, yeah. Anytime. Thank you, everyone out there listening. I really appreciate having you here with us. I hope you learned something. <laughs> and uh, if, oh, if this novel sounds like up your alley but you're not certain that you want to read this one in particular or you'd rather read something a little more contemporary I am only halfway through it but I am currently reading a novel called The Remains of the Day that a friend sent me very sweetly why does that sound so familiar by Kazuo Ishiguro which I hope I am pronouncing correctly yeah but Ishiguro has a lot of West's facility with not just descriptive texture but also conveying class and interpersonal dynamics through an unreliable narrator in ways that are really really impressive and I've been enjoying it very much so far I'm only about halfway through what's that about I think I've read that so it's about a butler Mm -hmm. Uh, this is post World War II and he is looking back over his career Again, I'm only about halfway through, but cracks are starting to form in the facade. Yeah. And he keeps, much like Jenny, he keeps kind of adamantly saying how much he has loved his career and how grateful he is for it. And uh, I am beginning to suspect that we should maybe (laughs) not believe him as much as he would like us to believe him. I think I've either read that or another Ishiguro book, and it was fantastic. It's, yeah, it's been wonderful so far. So like, beautiful writing. 1110 would highly recommend. If The Return of the Soldier sounds up your alley, but maybe you don't want to think too much about trench warfare, or you'd like to read something a little more contemporary, I would highly recommend Ishiguro's The Remains of the Day. Mm. And that's it for us today. That's all. Thanks so much for being here. And as always, if you can, this week, this month, this pay period, consider supporting a living author because they could sure use the love. Please. Bye. Goodbye.